And welcome to this first in a series on Revelation. There is a study guide just right outside the doors there. I encourage you to pick it up and read through it and use the pace of this. Add it to your daily devotions, your daily scripture reading. As you look at the questions, read the scriptures as we go through this eight-week series on the book of Revelation. And it's um, not Revelations, so don't put an S on the end. It's the Revelation. So it's one big dump of data called the Revelation. And we need this book as much as the first century church did. I mean, it's as applicable today in the 21st century as it was in the first century. The Revelation is to give us courage. It's also to encourage a very discouraged church. And sometimes I feel like the church in America gets discouraged and down and, you know, just thinking, oh, poor us, poor me. You know, look at what they're doing in Washington. Look what's going on in these state capitals. But this book is all about encouraging. It's all about the building up because Jesus Christ wins. I mean, that's the end of the story. We could close it up there. Jesus Christ wins. And it's almost like last night, um, you know, my wife is a Notre Dame grad. So we weren't together a lot last night for obvious reasons. Ohio State, I've got two degrees from Ohio State. We were playing each other. And um, I went to bed early and, uh, you know, I, I thought, oh, this is a loss for Ohio State. And uh, this cold kind of flared up about 11 o'clock. So I went and got a little of that NyQuil stuff. You ever try that? It's really good to calm down the cold. And I looked on my iPad. It's like, they won. You're kidding me. And it had just happened. I mean, as I was refreshing the page. And so I went to bed knowing I didn't see it. I knew they won. Well, Revelation's the same thing, only way, way, way better than that. You know, put your hope on a bunch of 19 and 20-year-old boys. If that's where your sense of identity comes from Ohio State football, you're in the wrong boat. But Jesus wins. And that is the, 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 the theme of Revelation. Jesus wins. Say that to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. Just, Jesus wins, man. Yeah, yeah. And as a result, we win. So in your... Um, on the outline, uh, it's not the greatest outline, it's really kind of pedantic, but it's the best I could do. Uh, I want to talk about Revelation being three different things, and, and, and kind of summarize it, and then we'll read the passage and go into more in depth. But Revelation's three things, really, and, that, and I'm talking about the whole book, 22 chapters. It's a letter to churches, and we often forget that. This is a letter that was written specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, current-day Turkey, starting with Ephesus and all the way through Laodicea. And it was a, a postal route that if you were a postman of that day, the postwomen, if they had them, um, you would start in Ephesus and you would hit all these seven churches in about a 200-mile uh, circumference. And it was um, these seven churches that the letter was addressed to. Now, a couple of these churches should be familiar. Ephesus, of course. It's, uh, uh, it's like the mother church of Asia Minor. Uh, so many uh, of the, the ministry of Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy, and, and, and later we'll see John, took place at Ephesus. So it is the church. But these other ones aren't so noted, but we're going to find out more about them in the next seven weeks. So this is primarily a letter. 
and we'll look at this book more in detail in the next eight week, or next seven weeks. Secondly, it is a prophecy. And of course, we like prophecy as the foretelling, you know, something that's going to come. But this book uses the phrase, what was, what is, what is to come. And there is a lot of that is to come in the book, but there's also a lot of what was and what is. So there's the foretelling of prophecy. Uh, not just the foretelling, but the foretelling. Thus saith the Lord. We see both of those in Revelation. And if you try to read Revelation and you just decide to really be bold and go chapter 4 on, uh, it's not linear. It's not t- a timeline. It jumps around a lot. And we'll look a little bit at that today. And then finally, it's an apocalypse. If you need help spelling that, ask your neighbor. It's an apocalypse. In fact, the very first word in the Greek text is apocalypsis. Revelation, what we call revelation, is the word, Greek word apocalypsis, which has kind of been morphed to apocalypse now, and it's used as a tragedy or the culmination of things. But apocalypsis means, here's what it is. I'm going to tell you, it's a revelation. I'm just telling you this. So if you came home and you got a new job and delivered the news, you're delivering an apocalypsis. You're revealing what the truth is. But it's full of imagery and colors and animals and numbers. And uh, it goes beyond just mere intellectual connection into the imagination. Uh, I mean, let, let's look at one of these. I just love this in Revelation 12 because it appeals to me. Turn, turn your Bibles, if you would. We're going to just quickly hit this and, and then move on with the chapter we're dealing with today, but uh, page number 1,282, Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What is that? Well, that's the same thing we sing, Silent Night, and little baby Jesus in a manger. I mean, that's the birth of Jesus there. What a greater story. You know, Silent Night, after a while, it's like, oh, come on, can we do something different? But we, we don't want a dragon on stage at Christmas. It would scare the children. But that's what the apocalypse is. It's the revealing of these things in great imagery. And, and I think the key is Revelation shows who our real enemy is. Your real enemy isn't a person. It's not your wife. It's not your neighbor. It's not your husband. It's not even a politician of a different stripe. So get over that, people. It's not your, that's not our real enemy. Our real enemy is this dragon, Satan, Satan and his forces. We wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood. That's people. But against principalities and powers and, and all these things in high places. Our real battle is a spiritual battle, not a people battle. And when we make people our enemy, we say, you're a soul that is a soul that needs Christ, but because I don't like you, I'm not going to 
share with you the redeeming love of Jesus. That's what happens when we make people our enemy. And this book of Revelation shows who our real enemy is. Satan loves to have us hate people who have an eternal soul that needs Jesus because he's always looking for more recruits. And in doing that in our hearts, we create the opportunity for that soul to go to hell because we've never shown that individual the love. Okay, so it's a letter to churches. Let's turn to Revelation 1, page uh, 1,273, and I want to read the entire first chapter. And I'm going to start with Greek. Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, that's the revelation, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Let me repeat that just in case God doesn't bless me here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those, you all, who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are about his throne. And from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle of called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and when I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are yet to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, well, the seven star and the golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's God's word. And what a Sunday it was for John. You know, here he is trying to have his quiet time, 
and is interrupted by apocalypsis, the revelation from God. And this is a letter to churches, just like we have Galatians and Philippians and Ephesians. It's a specific message for a specific people at a specific time and place. But it is also a message for us. So we, as they took encouragement from it, so too should the church today take encouragement from this. It says, blessed, in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written, for the time is near. And I want to just do a little sidelight on the church. We spent three, the past three weeks looking at the importance of the church. I just want to emphasize, the church is God's plan A. And there's no plan B, C, D. There's no alternative. God has chosen at this point in time to use the church. I hear so often people complain about the church. Well, the church should be doing this, or the church should be, and I'm not even sure what they mean, or if they even know what the church is in that sense. But there's so many complaints about the church. And in spite of its flaws, its problems, its issues, and yes, there are some things that are bad that happen in the church because you know why, right? Why there are some things that happen that are bad in the church? It's because I'm part of the church. Oh, oh yeah, and you are too. And we bring our sinful natures in and cause that. But in spite of that, God has chosen to use the church, you all, as his plan A until the culmination of all things that we see in the end of Revelation. And what does God want from his church? Well, he kind of wants us to kick back and, and be served and, you know, kind of like on a cruise ship, right? That's kind of what God wants. No! He says, I want you to storm the gates of hell. Now, how many have been storming the gates of hell this week? (laughs) Well, you know, some of you, I saw a hand go up. And you do that through prayer. You do that through engaging your culture. You do that by being active in your faith. He wants the church to storm the gates of hell. He wants us to be on the offense, to take captive captivity. I'm not even sure what that means, but it sounds exciting to take captive captivity, to bring light to the darkness, and to redeem it for his purposes. Uh, There was an article, uh, the the title alone really troubled me in Christianity Today. Now, I read it just to keep up on things. I don't buy everything in there, but the publication had the, uh, the the article had the, the title, Can You Love God But Hate the Church? What a stupid topic. Can you love God but hate the church? And this went on for about 500 words, and you know what the answer is? According to this author, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can love God but hate the church. And I think, what is wrong with you? In this hyper-therapeutic, we want everyone to feel safe. Oh, yeah, you know, God is great, but we can hate the church. I don't think God, I don't think the author of Revelation would agree with that at all. And no one should be um, wounded by the church. And the church, again, I'm using that term, the church, has wounded many. I mean, that's just wrong. There have been leaders in the church that have done terrible things. But the church is God's plan A. So I'm thankful you all agree with me because you're here, you're engaged, you're part of it. And hopefully at the end of this series, we can charge the gates of hell. We can storm the gates of hell as our daily practice. Uh, we see a very different focus here as 
God reveals this, this um, letter to John, then this kind of self-help therapeutic approach that we see in Christianity today. Everyone needs to be safe and happy and you know, not, you know, not get any struggle or anything going on. So uh, this, if, you're, if you're into that, if you think you can hate the church and, and still love God, uh, this book's going to challenge that thought. It's going to challenge it. So what, this book was written... Um, let me catch up on my outline, uh, to a church, that, uh, recipients that um, were under intense persecution. I'm on point two there about the recipients, but the church is God's plan A. Uh, they were under intense persecution. Now, today I hear people say, oh, I'm under such persecution. I say, well, what's that? I went to Target and they have a gay pride displayed right in the front. Like, is that persecution? Really? I mean, it, Really? Uh, have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? I mean, it's horrible. I read it on the beach once. I mean, talk about the wrong place to read a book about martyrs, sitting on the beach, enjoying the sunshine. I mean, it just shows the dichotomy of what we face. I mean, this church was under such intense persecution. It was written about 96 AD. So just at the end of the first century, after three decades of persecution. So as the church was formed, it was under persecution, but it was kind of uh, sporadic, I guess is the best term to use. It was a Jewish-led persecution of the church. And we see that in Acts as the church was formed, uh, came under persecution from the church leaders of the Jewish, not church leaders, I'm sorry, the Jewish leaders, and they scattered the church abroad. And as the church was scattered, it spread. So the persecution in Acts was really mild compared to what's happening here. In 65 AD, Nero, the emperor of Rome, the leader of the world, started a very intense persecution. And five years later, in AD 70, it really culminated with Roman soldiers coming into Jerusalem and just killing everybody. They raised the temple flat and... uh, There were 900 towns and villages where Jews and Christians were completely obliterated. If you read about what Nero did, it was horrible. I mean, if it was on the news today, the United Nations would be in an uproar. But he had the opportunity and the power to do that. And and the persecution shifted from the Jewish leaders now to the Roman nation, the empire, persecuting the church. In 70 AD... uh, um, was probably the height of it where Paul and Peter and Timothy were dragged out and killed. I mean, it's like someone coming in here and taking Pastor Dave off the stage and popping him with a bullet through the head. That's, that's what it was like in 70 AD. And that was under the Roman leader Vespasian. And he was the one who made it famous for his garden parties to take Christians pull them out off the street or out of their homes, coat them with oil or tar, pitch, and if that didn't kill them, impale them with a stake and plant that stake in his garden and light it so that he had human torches for his garden parties. I mean, you have tiki torches, right, around your patio to keep the mosquitoes away. He had human torches, and he used Christians to do so. 
And, you know, we get upset because the curriculum in the public schools is, is shifting, but that's not persecution. What they experience is persecution. 70 AD, as I mentioned, was the darkest uh, time, and at that in, in, it continued under other Roman emperors. You know, they were always being killed off by their sons or their wives or the cousins. And finally, Domitian was the emperor in the 90s, and he formalized emperor worship. So you had to, as a Roman occupant of the Roman Empire, worship Caesar. You had to give your pledge of allegiance to Caesar. You had to give offerings to Caesar. You had to say, Caesar is Lord. And, you know, just think of the cost of saying Jesus is Lord. Yeah, we put that on coffee mugs and, and, and bumper stickers. You know, for these people who are getting this letter to say Jesus is Lord, at best it means you are cut out of everything. You have no means of economic survival. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be put away. Or at worst, it means death. Because that is the ultimate authority that someone like the emperor Domitian has, is to kill you. That was what these folks were experiencing. So they were um, experiencing this great, great persecution. And it's interesting that they weren't called, this wasn't a call of comfort, this was a call of repentance. He, he's saying, hey, in spite of that, you all need to repent. God didn't grade on the curve or give them a pass, but they were all called to repentance. And he called him to repentance because he provides the courage. He himself provides the courage for them to abide by these words. So let's talk about the messenger. And the messenger was the Apostle John. And he was uniquely qualified to receive this revelation. He was the last remaining apostle. He had been in Ephesus working in the church, following the ministries of Paul and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla and Timothy and he had been very active in this church and was part of the persecution, got caught up in it. Uh, one, one church writer says that he was boiled in oil. Now, I don't know if you've ever been boiled in oil, but it doesn't sound very appealing. And, and yet he didn't die. So they sent him to this isle called Patmos, which isn't a club med. You know, it's a, just a barren rock in the Aegean Sea, just a volcanic rock. And there he lived in a cave, and that's when this revelation came. And yet, in spite of that, what was he doing on the Lord's Day? What's it say? He was worshiping. You know, I, I, was, just, I was in the Spirit. I was worshiping God, and this revelation came to me. So John was uniquely qualified and took great comfort from these words after all that he had experienced. And the message that is over and over in Revelation is Jesus reigns over all. Jesus reigns over all. And he begins this with the passage, grace to you and peace. This is verses four and five of, of chapter one. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and this is a throwaway line that we quickly go over. The ruler of kings on earth. Now think about this. You're under 
the heel of an evil Roman emperor, Domitian. And Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. You know, we have a pretty mild uh, government, and yet we wonder, is God really in control of our government? Yet we're still allowed to worship. There's still so much freedom that we have. And yet John is writing this. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. And I want to focus on that phrase as we wrap up this first chapter, this introductory chapter, because John repeats this over and over. In fact, several other times in Revelation, says he is king of kings and Lord of lords. What does that mean? Really, that Jesus reigns over all. Jesus is the ruler of all kings, presidents, despots, emperors, premiers, governors, and prime minister. Jesus is over all. No matter what Vladimir Putin does, um, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un in, in, in North Korea, the crazy guy, um, Ali Kamani from um, Iran, no matter what they do, think about this, all of them are under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Well, and that also includes your boss, you know, and the president of your HOA, and, and all those others who are in authorities. All of them are under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. You know, if Joe Biden were to say, and I don't think he would say this, but if he were to say um, to Jesus, you know, how can you rule over me? I was elected as the will of the people in a valid election. Uh, the Constitution uh, of the United States of America, that great document that's over 200 years old, uh, uh, applied for my inauguration and installation into this, the great presidency of the United States. If he were to say that to Jesus, and again, I don't think he would, I think Jesus would answer, yeah, you got the Constitution, people of America electing you. My installation is by God. And um, it's God's election. And by virtue of my resurrection and my indestructible life and my installation at God's right hand, I rule all. Any questions? When Jesus rose from the dead, God exalted him, and in Ephesians it says, gave him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee might, what? Bow. Yeah, yeah. Jesus rules all. It's a life-changing thought that no matter what's going on here in America, in Ukraine, in China, and there's a coup in Niger, and you know, all these crazy things going on, Jesus rules over all. And the implications of that are three. So I want to look at that today. It's actually more than three, but three that I just want to mention as we wrap up today. That he controls who becomes king and who doesn't. Uh, you think your election, right, you vote, you, you, you control that, you have some way, and, and it's a good thing that we can, we can vote. But ultimately, Jesus controls everything. Jesus controls that. The reign of Christ today means that he controls who becomes king and who doesn't. In Matthew 28, he, he says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And all authority means, in the Greek, all authority. 
You know, there, it doesn't get any less than that. God's authority to remove kings set kings up. The Father appoints the kings and presidents of the earth through the Son. And that doesn't mean every king is obedient, right? Uh, or lives a Christian life or is it pleasing to the Lord. Not at all. But all kings, all authorities, all emperors, all dictators are appointed by God through Jesus Christ. And I'd like you to listen to the news with that thought in mind. Because it will change your whole approach to life. I see so often Christians who are worried and worked up. Oh, And the news, of course, their intent is to get you worried and worked up. They get you to be worried that's going to rain on Wednesday, so you check back in and watch the commercials. They get you worried about what's happening with the election cycle. They get you worried with what's going on in Ukraine. Jesus is Lord of all. No authority is, is granted except through his hands. Secondly, he regulates what the kings on earth do. I mean, this is even more intense. Okay, yeah, maybe he appoints them, but then he's done with them. But no, he regulates what the kings on earth do. Um, Sometimes he holds back the evil that they would do. Sometimes he allows it. He has the ability to prevent evil, right? But in some cases, he allows it. He allows it. And we don't know why, but don't shake your fist at God in anger. We know that his plan is perfect and that in all his ways are just. He is the ruler of the kings and earth and he orders international events to his order. Just think about this. There is a young, virgin, pregnant girl in Nazareth who is carrying the Messiah and the Messiah was going to be born where? In Bethlehem. She's in Nazareth and has no link to Bethlehem. And it's 90 miles away. And her betrothed, however, does have a connection to Bethlehem. That's his home country. That's hometown. And God ordered through Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire, a census. I mean, why, why take a census? That census was purposed by God to get Mary out of Nazareth to Bethlehem so that the Messiah could be born in Bethlehem and fulfill Scripture. I mean, censuses are expensive, they're time-consuming, they're disruptive, and yet all these people had to travel everywhere else because of that. I mean, God orders the things of the world. And lastly, he is ordering the world for the good of the church. Again, church is his plan A. You, me, we are plan A for God. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And in Matthew 16, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church. And finally, we see in Revelation 17, they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. Why? For he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. In other words, because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, he cannot be defeated. His cause will triumph. And this should be the air we breathe as a church. This should be our passion as we storm the gates of hell, that we have that authority because Jesus wins. We've seen the end. You know, the, the game is over, and we see the end, how it's going to end. With that confidence, we can storm the gates of hell.
God has put all things under Christ's feet and has made him head over all things for the sake of his church. So I want to close with a little history lesson. You know, I I was a history teacher for one year. That's all I lasted. Um, So kudos to you teachers who are 25, 30 years into it. But at the closing of uh, Christ's ascension, we read there were about 500 followers. And not all of them were dedicated to him. Some of them were on the fringe, but there were 500 people there at his ascension that were claimed to be his followers. And, and by Acts 4, the church had grown to about 20,000 people. We know <clears throat> there were 8,000 men. So you add on women and, and younger kids, <clears throat> probably 20,000. A, a mega church. Some of you say, I don't want to be part of a mega church. Well, you wouldn't have done very well in Acts 4, you know, because they were a megachurch at that point. And those 8,000, probably 20,000 people were spread throughout Asia Minor, throughout Palestine, um, into the Roman Empire. And for the next 30 years, the church experienced this global expansion throughout Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and, and Rome, and, and um, even beyond Rome, the church expanded and expanded, and then in late 60s came under intense, intense persecution for 40 years, and that's where we find this letter. Um, It was so bad, but yet God calls his church to repent over and over in these seven churches that we will see in the following weeks. Repent, repent, repent. And you know, it looked pretty bad at the end of that first century. But like, really, you know, is this going to make it or not? If I were, I never bet more than a quarter on anything. I usually don't even do that. But if I were a betting man, I would say, the over-under, they're not going to make it. This, this whole, whole movement is done. Forward 250 years later to the mid, what would it be, the fourth century? The, the 350s, you know, if you can use that. 351 there were 350 million Romans who pledged allegiance, not to the emperor, but to Christ. 350 million citizens of the Roman Empire, or occupants of the Roman Empire, pledged allegiance to Christ. Here are seven churches that are barely making it. You know, they may have one or two in their church. 350 million. In fact, it was over... Over 51% of the entire population of the Roman Empire that pledged allegiance to Christ. It was so great that Constantine, who was the emperor at that time, said, Hey, let's go with the flow. We're a Christian nation. He declared Rome a Christian nation. And we are here today as a result of that faithfulness. We are here as, today as a result of these seven churches repenting and being faithful to Jesus Christ. And, 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 you know, the church is plan A. I don't know if you know that. Because even though it's messy and filled with issues and problems, and it always has been, because you're part of it and I'm part of it, but we are set apart for that glorious message to deliver. And that's what these churches were faithful in doing. Um, not because you're great or I'm great or awesome, but because he is great and he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. And in that we can rejoice. We can take courage and encouragement from knowing that God is in control of all things. The rulers of the earth, all that they do, and all that they do as it affects the church because it is his plan until the culmination of all time.